0: Good morning Vietnam. This is Gary Kavner and this is TRSI. For those of you worried about that new introduction, don't worry, it's not an acid flashback. Michael Dwyer isn't with me today and I just didn't know how to open the show without asking him how his day was. So, since we don't have Michael here and there are no distractions, let's get in and get out. Two things before we actually start talking about the stories. I had a couple of questions about and comments on the last episode. One was in relation to the opening I used, O Fraptious Day, Kalu Kalei, and where that came from, because I've used it a number of times before. It is from a poem called Jabberwocky, by Lewis Carroll, the chap who wrote Alice in Wonderland. You will be familiar with part of it if you ever got into D&D or tabletop role-playing or anything like that. The Jabberwocky, the poem, is the origin of uh, the weapon called the Vorpal Blade. The exact stanza which I was quoting from is And hast thou slain the Jabberwock, come to my arm, my beamish boy, O Frabj's day, K'lu callay! he courtled in his joy. And then we got a couple of comments about the conversation I and Michael had been having about what would have been needed to do to break the Taliban, to actually put them down. And we'd been saying you would effectively have to have committed a variety of war crimes in the style of the Soviets, but significantly greater in scale. And people had said, came back and said, well, you know, the Taliban is basically this franchise operation and uh, Afghanistan is this mess of shifting tribal loyalties. So you, could you, someone fights for the Taliban one day and fights for the government the other. And could we not have simply incentivized them with cash or things like that uh, instead of having to slaughter all of them. And I, uh, you know, I think those are, are incredibly sensible and eminently reasonable questions to ask. But no, the answer is no. And we know it's no because we try and it failed horrendously. And even as I'm recording this, the uh, Taliban are ever- closer to taking the capital of Afghanistan, and now seem to have armed themselves with a variety of American-derived weapons. So if you've ever wanted to see some lovely videos of Taliban militia members flying in American military helicopters, social media is currently your friend, because it's full of that sort of thing. So on to the actual news first thing I wanted to bring up is a little bit of a piece in the business post, and I'll put a link to it below if you want to read it. But the piece is headlined, Blackouts loom this winter as emergency plan is abandoned. And the basic gist of it is that Ireland learned nothing from Germany when Germany decided it was going to bollocks up its own energy system. And we have basically followed in that path. And the long and short of it is that now it looks like, well, winter is going to be an uncomfortable time. Now, this is going to tie together with the point we were making in the last episode about the elderly freezing to death in their homes because the heating systems have turned off. And fuel is something we have to make as expensive as humanly possible because if we don't do that, then climate will be angry something of that nature. I'm not not quite sure of the rationale for it, but it's it's apparently our policy now. Not the stated policy. The stated policy is, of course, all the good things, but the actual consequence of our policies. So the general gist of it is that we are not producing enough energy. So we had planned to import power uh, generators into the country to try and mitigate that. The problem, of course, is that, well, another energy firm took a high court challenge, alleging that the procurement process run by Airgrid was anti-competitive, and Airgrid then decided to abandon the move to bring in those generators, which could be taken to suggest that perhaps the other firm was right, but I don't know. It goes through exactly what is causing this issue, and they highlight a couple of issues, some more pressing than others. One is data centres, which take up a well, it's actually quite difficult to tell exactly how much energy data centers use and how much they're projected to use into the future. The general line seems to be that they use 11, somewhere around 11% of the total electrical grid now. And then when you look at the projections, they go up to about 29%, I think is the commonly used figure in media. However, when you read the reports, it's not just data centers included in that, it's other what they would call large energy users. So they would be companies above a certain scale that would have high requirements for energy. And they don't break that down, so we don't know how much of that is purely data centre and how much of it is other things. It could be nearly entirely data centres. We don't know. It says there have been some outrages at two major gas plants, The retirement of two peat-fired power stations in the Midlands, the increased volume of variable renewables on the grid, and a weak pipeline of new firm power generation capacity. Now, in relation to the peat-fired power stations, we seem to have done pretty much what Germany did when they decided that they didn't want all of this nuclear power that was going around and started turning off the reactors, and then suddenly realised afterwards that, ah, you need some other way to generate that power. And in Germany's case, they went back to coal. And of course, we've done the same thing. So as the article notes, all three of the coal-fired generators at Money Point Power Station have been restarted this year. And there's fossil fuel-fired plants at two of their locations operating at max capacity. So Airgrid, hoping to get two gas generators back online, they were the generators that we're saying there have been outrages in. But they're also looking at solutions to this problem. So, of course, keeping the Money Point Coal uh, power plants running is part of that solution because, of course, it would be. But the one I think is quite interesting is um, implementing scarcity price signals to drive down electricity demand during difficult periods. Now, what that means in practice is that um, electricity prices are going to go up during periods of difficulty such as you know a frost snap or a cold period or let's say something messes with some of the renewables well you can look forward to electricity prices going up i haven't seen the full report on this because different countries do it different ways some countries do it only to commercial entities only to businesses and some do it to everyone, so households would pay as well. Now the problem there of course is that if that's the case, well richer households have more money. So you can institute a policy which basically means that the rich are perfectly fine and pay slightly more in electricity, and the poor don't get to have electricity for a while. And if this happens commonly and you start seeing it on a you know a pervasive basis, that might be a little bit of an issue. Now, of course, you might say electricity is a rare commodity and growing ever rarer and that therefore it's appropriate that people should pay due to scarcity in the national grid. The counterpoint to that is generally that modern life is built entirely on electricity and the provision of cheap electricity is a large part of what allows people to live comfortable lives and that if you institute a system in which the rich have as much access to electricity as they want, and the poor have to carefully ration their electricity, you are going to be the person responsible for one of the most major declines in quality of life standards that this country has seen in the last, oh, well let's just say the birth of the state. And that, I think many people on both the right and the left would say, would be a bad thing. The entire point of course may be academic, As the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities has said that Ireland is, at current projections, going to be facing rolling blackouts, in which case it won't really matter if you've got money or not, you'll just get to go without electricity. Assuming, of course, that's fairly distributed across the country. And you might hear that news and think, but Ireland is a modern country. How can we be in a situation where we could have rolling blackouts, like some third world shithole? And the answer to that would be because of choices that the government has made in relation to energy. Could have been building nuclear power plants for the last 40 years. We would not have this situation. We would also be a greener country overall. Energy would most likely be cheaper, more readily available. There would be less disruption. And environmentally, we would be solid. But we didn't do any of that. A large part of why we didn't do that actually is because of the environmentalist movement. They spent decades demonizing nuclear power because it is in you know a techno fix. And it doesn't solve any of the other issues that they're interested in in relation to climate change like global justice, which we've started to see pop up more. It just provides massive amounts of clean energy at a quite reasonable price. Although of course price depends on the system you use to get it in certain locations, the prices given to nuclear power plants have been far above what they should have been because they're a nightmare to build and the government has usually gotten involved and given guaranteed prices. But it remains to me a constant source of amusement that a large part of the troubles now talked about, the issues with energy production, problems with the whole climate, if we had just built nuclear power plants 40 years ago, just globally, they probably wouldn't exist. Or if they did exist, they would be incredibly mitigated. And that wasn't done due to the Green Movement. I still think it's the the dividing line between reasonable, sensible environmentalists and conservationists, and just the random lunatics who are just really into that for a while. But anyway, we can look forward to that. It'll be interesting to see if the government is punished for any of this. Because say what you will about Sinn Fein, I have a feeling they're not gonna look forward to the idea of scarcity of electricity in working class areas. I don't know, maybe that's how we'll get the nuclear power plants. Anyway, just an interesting story, and if it is correct, I would advise you to go and get like a little uh, gas heater or something because this may be a rough winter. If you've never tried it, you can actually create a a, um, rudimentary heating device by getting some candles and leaving them in um, some upturned terracotta pots. If you put, I think, two or three layers of terracotta pots with some candle in the centre, the terracotta warms and then radiates outwards and actually creates something very lovely that may be useful to you in the winter when the cold comes. This, I think, is, is a wonderful example of a point that I, Michael, have Brought up before that the root of human prosperity has always been cheap energy. Cheap and plentiful energy is the cause of most of the advances we have seen in human prosperity and innovation and all of that good stuff over the last while. And now we are going to fuck it up immensely because people in general don't understand how fundamental energy is. It's going to be a bad time for a lot of people, particularly poorer people. The discussion seems to be, everything done in relation to climate change can only have positive consequences, and everything that happens due to climate change can only have negative consequences. And neither of those things are true. But it's not a problem we're going to solve here, certainly not without Michael to keep me in check. Anytime I talk about this, I'm a single bad sentence away from just ranting about the hippies and how they've destroyed the planet. They have good intentions. Actually, from one from one anti-science story to another, the Examiner has a new uh, editorial, and as you know, as long-time listeners particularly will know, I love me a good Irish Examiner editorial. And I do recommend you go through the archive because these things are wild. They will say literally anything. But here's one. This is again about uh, anti-vaccine protests, and it, it's titled "Lost, Dangerous, and Bewildered: Anti-Vaccine Protests and a Rejection of Science Show a Bizarre Disdain." For the facts of our world. And then it talks about the anti-vaccine movement's rejection of science. And then it takes a little dig at them because there was an anti... There was a protest in London, the Irish Examiner, on Monday. The Irish Examiner says it was anti-vaccine. Don't rightfully know what it was about. From the images I've seen, it seemed to be about um, vaccine passports. But that's close enough for the Irish Examiner to say it's an anti-vaccine protest. It's not like they give a shit. And it says that the, these protesters scuffled with police as they stormed what they thought was the major BBC building, although the corporation left it almost a decade ago. And then they say it's tempting, tempting as it is, and justified too, to scoff at another layer of ignorance, a far more important reaction, would be to ask why a public service broadcaster might be targeted in such a way. And I've really got to admire the Irish Examiner for taking the high road here, and even doing, well, they did it in a way that clearly mocks the protesters, not directly mocking the protesters. Unfortunately, in the paragraph before that, it does say, after the vaccine movement's bizarre rejection of science shows a bizarre disdain for the facts of our world, it is not surprising so that the movement has a feeble understanding of geography and events too. You can't, generally it wouldn't be the thing to mock a group and then a couple of sentences later point out that you're not mocking the group. Anyway, whatever. The Irish Examiner is, is the Irish Examiner. Why I really wanted to mention it is it does one of my favourite things. It accuses people of rejecting science. By which they mean rejecting particular results related to vaccines. And it kind of ties into the, um, the point on uh, climate change. The line on climate change is that the science is settled and we're done here. And here you kind of see the same thing. There is a science. Science has decided the appropriate answer. We're done. We know what we need to do. It just needs to be done. And it's all the troglodytes holding us back. The problem there is that that's not what science is. Science is an iterative process through which we attempt to understand the world through replicable experimentation and observation. It is not a result. Science is a process of through which we understand reality. Science contains within it the acceptance that any previous discovery could be wrong, and any future discovery could be wrong, because it's an iterative process. It would in fact be fair to say that nearly all scientific understandings will in the end be wrong, because we are moving towards, in a perfect world, a more correct understanding. The only way you can actually be against science, you can actually reject science is one of two ways. You can take the approach that there is no external reality, no single external reality that can be explained by science, in which case you reject the epistemologic basis of science. Epistemology, by the way, is the philosophical study of how we know what we know, different ways of knowing. So it's the study of knowledge. Science is an epistemological method. So, you can say that you reject any external reality that can objectively be proven to be real. That's one way. That's not the common way. And even a lot of people who say they believe that, don't really. The second way is to say that any current finding of science is beyond reproach and cannot be changed. Because if you say that, you are rejecting science as an epistemology. Because you are saying this is the end point. There is always in science the potential that you are wrong. And if you don't accept that, well, then you are not actually viewing things in a way that is in line with the idea of science. This might seem like a really minor thing, but it's really irritating. Because people constantly are there when people disagree with them in relation to some particular thing. And it's perfectly reasonable for these people to want to do it. Science has a certain aura to it, particularly in the modern world. It is the kind of thing that religion has gone. No one gives a shit about philosophy. But science has made people's lives better. I mean, arguably, it's been engineering that's made people's lives uh, better. But that's a conversation for a different day. So you say that people are against science rather than saying they're against a particular study or a particular viewpoint or a particular whatever. And it's this incredibly naive view of what science is and where it comes from. And this, by the way, is not to say that the they're wrong and that people who are against vaccine passports or lockdowns or whatever are right. Either side could be wrong or right. The examiner could be absolutely right, ultimately. What I'm saying is it's not anti-science and it's never anti-science to say that you disagree with any prevailing scientific idea regardless of how well backed up it is now if you totally disengage from the process and refuse to engage with reality you can start making arguments to it that you're moving towards that rejection of objective reality but that's not where most people are It's also kind of funny in that, particularly in relation to things like climate change, basically no one who talks about it knows what they're talking about for the simple reason that it's very, very complicated, and there are probably very few people who understand a lot of the modellings used and a lot of the assumptions and the correctness of those. It may be that there is actually no single person with full knowledge of everything involved in these things simply because it is so complicated. In which case, a large part of this is based on trust. You trust certain scientists and certain people to honestly tell you what is happening with this, and then you move forward on the assumption that that is correct. But you don't understand it. And you won't ever understand it, because unless you are willing to dedicate most of your life to understanding the statistical models and climatology and all of those things, you're just not going to. At some point, you have to decide who you want to trust. And a lot of, I think, what we're seeing now with vaccine passports, with lockdowns, with stuff like this accusing people of being anti-science, with a lot of the debate about climate change as well. It ultimately doesn't come down to the, the science of it at all, because, as I said, basically no one on either side understands the science in a comprehensive fashion. It comes down to who you trust. And the problem there is that if you trust people on one thing, you tend to trust them on other things. So you can see people move very rapidly into positions that they can't really back up and are perhaps further than even the people they are relying on would want them to go conversely, and I think you've seen a lot of this during lockdown, people have noted the very shoddy behaviour of, let's say, the government or the media, and they have then decided, since they don't trust them, they'll trust some other people who appear to be antagonistic to them, and they end up believing things that are also, i pretty clearly false, but in other directions. They assume that If the government is against it, it must be correct. And the problem there is that the government is still basically controlling what you believe. Now you're just doing the opposite. It does seem to be a significant problem. And it's it's a problem that I don't think... I think many people, when they talk about things like extremism and populism and things like that, they run into the problem that a lot of people legitimately do not view a lot of the institutions which would traditionally have given society shape as trustworthy. And I think the problem there is that a lot of that lack of trust is very, very reasonable, given some of the things that those people have uh, gotten up to. And COVID, I think the Trump years damaged the media immensely. And the COVID period, I think, is going to damage the government immensely. Because as we've talked about before, it appears the government was actively lying to people about the restrictions and the difference between a guideline and a law and all of that. And eventually that has an impact. And when you look at larger conversations like climate change and things like that it becomes basically impossible but as an example of um science and the problem with science and the problem with having a naive understanding of where science comes from there's a particular study that's being done at the minute and i wanted to just mention it to people and to to go through it and it is a study being done uh, it is a study being conducted by Maynooth and the Limerick Feminist Network. So it's a campaign called Together for Safety. And what it is, is they are... Together for Safety is actively campaigning for what they call safe access zones around uh, family planning clinics, maternity hospitals, healthcare facilities, anywhere that gives information on abortion or sexual health or contraceptive. Now, this is obviously, you can question about the language here. They say safe access zone. They say anti-choice. So we're just going to use those because that's how this study is written. But those are absolutely ideological choices. So they want this to protect vulnerable people. And in order to back that up, what they've done is they are now doing an online survey backed by Maynooth and Maynooth say that they may uh, use this for peer-reviewed study later. Now, the problem with this is this. Maynooth are going in with an activist group, not an academic group, not a group that claims to be impartial. Or, as I like to think we are, biased but fair. We may not always hit that line. That is the line I like to aim for. So they're going in with this group, and the question then becomes, well, okay, how are you limiting the ability of this group to bias your research? Because an activist group could, if they have control over, let's say, the form of the survey, or if they have control about the distribution of the survey, they can influence on it. And what this survey is meant to be, is it's meant to go to healthcare professionals who can talk about protests they have had outside their facilities in relation to abortion. And they can explain what the protests were like and how they felt about them and whether or not they uh, support a law coming in to uh, stop those protests. Now, the first problem with a survey like this is going to be selection bias. The people who will feel most strongly about it are those who have an active ideological view, whether pro-choice or pro-life. So that immediately is going to bias your results because you're not going to get a representative sample of healthcare workers. But what I found interesting about the survey, and I'll put a, a link to it in the bottom of this so you can have a look at it, is this. At no point in the survey does it request any verification that you are in fact a healthcare worker nor does it collect any contact details for the person filling it out, meaning that even if the survey creators wanted to, they could not verify anything that they get is actually true or even that it came from a healthcare worker. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Limerick Feminist Network or Together for Safety would do this, but if you wanted to design a survey so that you yourself could bias the results by entering, not false information, Information that you know yourself to be correct, but are concerned that perhaps enough doctors who've experienced it might not fill out the survey to show those results, and you want to make sure you have the most accurate results. So you might yourself uh, put in data, or you might pass the survey to people who might themselves put in data, which would be, while systematically correct, individually fraudulent and might show the results that you wanted. If you wanted to design a survey to do that, you would design this survey nearly exactly. And the problem there, of course, becomes you do this, then you publish your result in a peer-reviewed journal, then it starts getting quoted in other things, and before you know it, you're three or four layers of reference in, and no one is going to go back and go, well, actually, that survey had incredible methodological issues which meant it, it, it's not trustworthy it would have been very easy to rig and you see this a lot with media and with academia you'll get these broad incredibly authoritative sounding statements and then when you look back at them you see there's layer upon layer of reference but ultimately they're based on a focus group of 10 people that was held in 1908 And it's just become so expected, so accepted, so widespread, that no one even looks where it came from. So we will, I I will do an article on this for GRIPT, purely to notify people before it moves forward. And I have reached out to the um, university to ask them, what verification systems are in place? How are you going to handle this? Why have you done it this way? And I'll be very interested on the answer I get back. I also did reach out to Together for Safety. But this is the, this is the sort of thing that's very useful for activists as well. Particularly if you do bias. And again, I'm not suggesting that Together for Safety are doing that. This may be, they're just not very good at surveys. And if you're working on the assumption that academics have a general level of competency and that they understand all of these things, let me just tell you, as someone who has dealt with academics from all disciplines and amongst many, many, many different political ideologies, for clients and for myself, getting things written and inviting them to talks, all of that, and just discussions. Do not assume, a, do not assume academics have any level of competency in something like this. Just don't. It's best for everyone. In the same way that the majority of scientific findings are going to ultimately be found to be false, in the same way the vast majority of academics are basically no value. Well, ultimately, like, they're useful stepping stones. But science, as they say, doesn't advance theory by theory, but rather funeral by funeral. And that, by the way, is true. If you look at the history of scientific development, one of the largest causes of um, large-scale change in scientific understanding is not the advent of a new theory. It's when the proponents of the previously accepted theory and their adherents, the people they train and the people who rise to prominence during their period when they die. Because then there's very little reason to keep with the old theory and the new theory comes in and it all just keeps cycling away. But this, this is useful. This is useful to activists. It's useful to academics. It gives them work to do. It's on a very popular field. And ultimately, the problem with This sort of stuff, even though it seems to be a very low quality, is, as I said, if you leave it alone, eventually it grows into something else. It builds a certain level of armour up around it, and people just, you know, tend to forget how bad the initial studies were. And as I said, you see that in a lot of it. The vast majority of scientific research is never replicated. Even information which is widely believed to be correct struggles sometimes with replication and may ultimately be false. But anyway, Michael isn't here today, so we will keep it to that. The half ration of an episode, I think, doesn't need to last any longer than it should. We will be back on Wednesday, where hopefully Michael will have come down from whatever sickness or drug-induced haze he's gotten himself into, and we will crack on again. Until then, all the best.